Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, Eamon, you were born and grew up in, in, in Dublin, in the working class areas of Dublin. What was your childhood like? Well, we had a one room. Uh, I, my brother and I, mother and father, all in one room. We didn't have uh, electricity, um, and uh, it was a pretty modest, uh, if not bleak, existence. In a rooming house, uh, it was in a lower middle class, middle class area, which actually made it worse, because if you're really poor, and everyone around you is really poor, you're all in it together. But if you're very poor in a otherwise uh, swanky enough area, you can feel... Uh, you can feel that. Okay, and uh, well, tell me about something about your parents. Your dad, I think, uh, was called Paddy, yeah? He was, yeah. He was a builder's labourer um, when I was a child growing up. Uh, very, very hard work, six-day week. Uh, Fiverr was the wages. If it rained, uh, there was a thing called broken time. You didn't get paid. Uh, and it rains a lot in Ireland. Yeah, it did, to be fair. Uh, so, um, he was a wonderful man, always in good form, good humour, liked to pint, uh, but very happily married to my mother, who was a very religious woman, and regarded her uh, vocation in life uh, to raise her children and be a, a good wife to provide food uh, and sustenance and love of course mm-hmm. uh, old-fashioned uh, values by the standards of today some would call those values reactionary but uh, my own view is that i was and my brother my late brother now who kevin. We were yeah kevin we were massive beneficiaries of that nurturing what about school Eamon? because um you've clearly um arrived in in your adult life as a man of uh, as we'll hear throughout, tr- tremendous uh, use of words and language, uh, and you're and you're and you're a pretty clear thinker. So, did you did you go to a good school or, or were you a good scholar? Uh, yes, because um, we lived in that neighbourhood, and my mother wouldn't leave it, even for a house in a lesser place. Mm-hmm. She wanted us to go to that school for a reason. It was a very good school. I did really well in the school. In fact, uh, Bertie Hearn, our former prime minister, went to the same school. Um, it was just a national school, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was a very good scholar. Unfortunately, um, although I was, uh, I didn't really go on. I, I won a one-year scholarship to second-level education, which is quite cruel, really, because in one year you get nothing. <laughs> so uh, it was a kind of a perverse Irish joke that the one year was up. I was 13, and uh, you weren't legally allowed to work until you were 14. 
but I scanned the papers and I got a job as a messenger boy on a bike. That was the end of studying a formal education. Yes. But I was a voracious reader of my father's newspapers, of any books from the library. So I read, read, read an awful lot. We didn't have a television. We had a radio eventually, but there was no television. And of course, you might think because we didn't have the gizmos and stuff that IT stuff that kids have today, that ours was um, a bleak and, and grey world. But I, I don't think it was. You had to use your imagination a lot more. We had wonderful comics, uh, you know, that we read. And I think probably yeah. it was richer in some ways for your and more fertile for your mind. Uh, absolutely. Um, you grew up at a time uh, when in the, in, the, in the Republic of Ireland and certain schools, uh, football, soccer, as, as they would have called it, was frowned upon. How, how did that work for you? Because obviously you were becoming a good player as well. Yeah, I, it didn't become an issue because it only became an issue at second level, really. Uh-huh. Uh, but Liam Brady, for example, um, there was a ban in, in place. Uh, any Gaelic sportsman who attended a soccer match or indeed any uh, Gaelic official was banned from that organization for life. Uh, that's how bad it was, how rigid it was. Um, great Irish Gaelic footballers used to wear caps and scarves and disguise themselves when Manchester United <laughs> came to town. It was amazing, really odd. But where did your love of football come from, Eamon? Um, I think I, we lived just opposite a football ground. Um, my father was a Gaelic man. He loved the Gaelic sport, hurling in particular. I just came... It, it, it was... Something we played after school. It was something we read about. Charlie Buchan's Football Monthly was as close as we got. Wonderful pictures of people like Nat Lofthouse. Occasionally colorized. Occasionally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Stanley Matthews and Tom Finney. And we, we in working class uh, towns, the cities in Ireland, um, soccer was the game. And uh, we knew as much about it by reading about it and imagining and sometimes getting to listen to it on a radio broadcast, a BBC broadcast, if the reception was good. Uh, I tell you a very funny story, Danny, about that. Um, John Giles, who is, was a great player in the game, his father, we, he was lived not far from us, and his father was a great football man. But John once heard his father and another man arguing about who was better, Finney or Matthews. This was the great issue of the, the great time. Debate, yeah. The great debate in English football. And they argued for an hour. And John said, at the end of it, it turned out neither of them had seen either Matthews or Finney play. So what they were, they had this fierce argument. And it was all on the basis of the perception that Finney was more an all-rounder and could play centre forward and had two feet, and Matthews was just doing it on the right wing. It was just an amazing imaginary world, but I think it's just, it tells you a lot. You were an apprentice at Manchester United. How did you come to the attention of, of that great club? Well, they had a, a, a man called Billy Bean, uh, who was a former Manchester United player and a friend of Matt Busby's, who was their Irish scout. He found Paul McGrath, he found John Giles, uh, the, the late... Uh, Liam Whelan, who died in the mm-hmm. Munich air crash, he was a very, very astute uh, judge of talent. But I, <laughs> I was the exception, maybe. But he, <laughs> he sent me, he scouted me and sent me to Manchester for a trial. That was I'd be there for two weeks and get to play one match in front of Mount Busby, 
45 minutes of the match, Busby was there the second half, and I had the game of my life. It was like divine intervention. And I played much better than I ever played subsequently or before. And I signed as an apprentice uh, professional, which was like a dream come true for a young kid anywhere. I mean, uh, but in Ireland, you know, it uh, was huge. Incredible, yeah. But and this is the days before Ryanair and that. When you when you um, oh, yeah. when you left Ireland, you left Ireland, um, and you yeah. were two day two days short um, when you went for that trial of your fifteenth birthday, and you Correct. signed as a fifteen year old. Um, yeah. Uh, what was it like leaving? Your home, your parents, your family, uh, to go to go and work in one in one of the bigger institutions in England. Yeah, it was I, for for me. It was a dream. <clears throat> I overcame the homesickness quickly, shockingly quickly, really. Mm-hmm. For my mother, it was heartbreak because yeah. I was her eldest son, and she was uh, a woman who didn't have much time for England um, for historical reasons. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with England. For yes. historical reasons as well. For hysterical but, reasons, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I loved the English way of life and I loved being just normal because for 15 years I'd been a standout poor kid in a, a sort of well-off area. So I loved the uh, an anonymity um, of just being in a group and having a go and you'd get by on your merits. The worst thing about... Uh, living in poverty and not being educated is the class system and the fact that you're excluded from good jobs and the prospect of good jobs. Here I was, and if I did my stuff, uh, and I was a hungry kid, I'd be get on in football, and I loved that. You signed uh, Pro Forms on your 17th birthday. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about the football some more in just a second. And Barry Fry, who, of course, was well, one of your yes. contemporaries at Manchester United. Well, no, my, he's my mentor. Really? Then God <laughs> bless you, me, yeah. He was my mentor, yeah. He told me everything I know about women, uh, yeah. gambling, uh, and 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 the meaning of life. Well, it, it, that's what I was going to say. Talk to me some more about the social scene in Manchester, because yeah. uh, in your autobiography, um, there's plenty about the football, but there's also plenty about being a, a, a late teenager in this massive city um, yeah. and having the time of your life, a ball. Yeah, we kind of did. I wish I could have another go at it, I'd do it better next time. But we did. It was a very, very buzzy time, 1962, 63, the Beatles were coming along, we saw them play. There was Jimmy Savile had a, a club called the, the Three Coins in Fountain Street in Manchester. We went there. He also ran the Plaza Ballroom uh, on Oxford Road, which was hugely. We saw Jerry and Pacemakers. Uh, we saw amazing bands. We saw them all. The Hollies, um, Herman's, Herman's. The Hollies. The Hollies, the Hollies course, used yeah. to play yeah. in the Plaza at lunchtime. Uh, for the office girls, Incredible. Which is where I met my first wife, actually. And now, of course, and we have to be careful where we tread it, you, you can't mention Jimmy Savile's name in this country. No, I know. But he was I, a I, massive pop star at the time, wasn't he? He was. He was huge. He, he drove around Manchester in a Rolls Royce in 1960, 61, 62. And uh, uh, oddly, ironically, uh, there were rumours that he liked young girls uh, and took them back uh, to his flat, which was in Salford. But he was certainly um, among the people. Um, and what subsequently happened uh, would have been less a surprise, I think, to many people in yeah, private. Of co- absolutely. Um, and now let's, uh, let's say I mentioned that Barry Fry, I mentioned Barry Fry there just as he was your mate, but now I, ter- now I discover he's your mentor in all things, um, both football and secular. Um, yes. I'm delighted to say that we're joined now by another um, legend um, of the English game, uh, Barry Fry. Hello, Barry. 
Hello, Danny. Hello, Eamon. How are you, my old mucker? Hiya, Barry. I'm great. Um, I can't be doing bad. I'm still, I'm on Danny's show. You told me if I kept working at it, I'd get there someday. So here I am. Uh, How yeah. you doing? I'm all right. I'm still fat and happy, mate. There ain't many of us left. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, um, we're talking. Eamon was talk, talking there about uh, you being his mentor in in how to live in 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 Manchester and in, and in England. We'll talk about the football a little later. I, I'm not sure you're the best example, Barry. To be sure. No, that's right. But um, we was in digs together. In fact, uh, Eamon played for error against us in uh, 1960. Schoolboys. We both joined United. I think I was there four years. Eamon was there five. Then he went to York. Then he went to Millwall, of course, for mm-hmm. about nine or ten years, and he was magnificent. And when he was at Millwall, I used to go and watch him with my scarf and rattle in them days, and I used to stay overnight at his house every now and then. But um, he was a brilliant player as a young boy, Eamon, and, uh, you know, he covered every blade of grass. I, I scored a lot of goals when I was there in the youth team, and, Eamon must have made 95% of them. God bless him. Well, it's, it's important to establish, of course, that Eamon was a very, very good footballer as well. Because otherwise, otherwise, I don't think people will put up with some of the things he says about other footballers <laughs> on RTE these days. Well, he, he, he always had a great opinion, Eamon, and uh, he wasn't one to keep it to himself. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I got in many fights, particularly with Wilf McGuinness. Nothing to do with me, but he was trying to batter Eamon and I... <laughs> I was a big partner and I jumped in and I, I if you talk to Wilf, he battered, he, he knocked seven bells out of me, but I'd, I'd tell you a different story and I knocked seven bells out of him, but it was good fun, it was great days, really passionate, people was committed, but Eamon was somewhat special, he, um, he wasn't only a great footballer, he was also a very intelligent man. We spent a lot of time at the dogs, Barry, we used to go to the dogs. Uh, every night of the week, um, yeah. didn't we, Barry? Yeah, it was lovely. For a couple of years. I've got, a, I've got a, new, a Manchester newspaper, in, or a cutting from a Manchester newspaper in front of me here with the headline, Babes in the Betting Shop. Yeah, Barry, and, do you And you two that? are both mentioned. We did I, it. Hey, I, I, I used to work in the betting shop. Gus Demis, I used to work in, in part-time, chalking the prices up. How about that? Because yeah, we in them bu- days, of course... The maximum wage was 20 quid, and I never got anywhere near that. And in the summer, I used to work in a betting shop, chalk the prices up. <laughs> yeah, I did. We did it together. Um, yeah. It was amazing. And, of course, it was just after betting shops had been licensed to be opened yeah. at all. Yeah. And Gus Demi was the leading bookmaker in Manchester, and his son, Selwyn. Selwyn, Selwyn. Yeah. Uh, they had this whizzo idea that... Um, we were always in the pen shop anyway. The guy said, why don't you chalk up the prices? Uh, so we, we, said, sure. we did. <laughs> and he said, but he said, come in tomorrow with your club blazers on. And yeah. we did. <laughs> and it was the dream PR. And it was babes in the betting shop, as you say. Yeah. And uh, Busby went mad. <laughs> he went mad. He had yeah. his in, didn't he, Barry? You, 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 the boss had a quiet word at that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. So um, my, my impression, and I'm sorry to base it on, on sort of uh, stereotypes, Barry, is that my, my first guess that you might not have been the ideal person to be a mentor turns out to be completely correct. Absolutely <laughs> spot on, Danny. You always was a good judge, mate. Yeah. I know you, Barry. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk, 
Eamon was a clean living boy when he came over. <laughs> I soon changed him. <laughs> Barry, thank you very much for just giving a flavour of, of your friendship. And you, Barry. And you too. Take care. For a man who loves the language and talking, <laughs> Eamon, I'm surprised you got a word in edgeways in your friendship with Barry Fry, but there you are. Well, he was very much the, the leader. He was a big, handsome lad, and he had all the patter, and he was a Cockney yeah. uh, accent, you see, mm-hmm. and the Manchester girls weren't crazy for that. Um, uh, they also they also went crazy a little later on for George Best, who must have turned up in the oh, club yeah. while he was still there. Did you did you know George at all? Oh yeah, I knew him yeah. very well. George came one year after I did, and he lived in Diggs quite close to us. He, he was very friendly with Barry. Yeah, uh, and I think he played in ten of Barry's fifteen testimonials. Yeah, contributes and the most. Yeah, he did. But I, I knew George really well. We went out together, dancing together, and uh, he liked to play snooker. We played a lot of snooker. Um, in the snooker hall in Charlton, Temperance Hall, uh, ironically, given what happened with George, mm-hmm. the tragic yeah. end. But uh, George was a lovely, quiet lad and initially very timid with girls. But of course, when he became a superstar when he was 17, 18, well, then it was a different world. And I don't think he ever was able to manage uh, the fame uh, without uh, the sustenance of drink uh, and this. You know, for anyone who knew George when we knew him, um, he was a lovely guy. When he was very famous and well off, he did a lot of favours for guys who'd played uh, and never made it. And he'd go and play matches for them and do things for them. They were playing in non-league clubs and stuff like that. So uh, George's life is, you know, the trajectory of George's life is a tragedy for football and for all of us who knew him. And I'm sure for football fans who feel... Very saddened by it. Yeah, I mean the other the other character of Manchester United in this time who I'd like to hear about it. I don't know how close the apprentice and young footballers got to Matt Busby. No, Jimmy Murphy was Matt's assistant, yeah. and Wilf McGuinness, who Barry referred to there, Wilf was the youth team coach. And getting in the youth team for the youth cup, the FA Youth Cup, was a huge thing, a huge achievement, which happily Barry and I did. Um, and we dealt mostly with Jimmy. Jimmy would be there for the, uh, the youth matches. He'd be at uh, uh, reserve team, B team matches. Jimmy was the, 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 the focal point uh, and the go-to man. Very kindly man, uh, football-wise, had huge influence. I think Bobby Charlton subsequently said that Jimmy Murphy was the person who helped him most as a footballer, and I know John Giles, for example, who I'm very friendly and close to now yes. and work with, John would also testify, as would many others, to Jimmy Murphy's ability as a coach and as a football man. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, listen, you can tell us one more story about your time at Manchester United, I think, because you mentioned John, Johnny Giles, as we know him in this country, and, you, and Barry Fry has just been on. Um, when Manchester United reached the FA Cup final in 1963, <laughs> uh, I think the three of you set up some kind of business enterprise that perhaps <clears throat> didn't turn out as well as you'd hoped. No, when they got to the cup final, in those days, players were very badly paid anyway. But um, Manchester United were pretty bad payers. But when they got to the cup final in 63, um, there was a tradition at the club. They would give the players uh, 100 tickets. And the FA rule said 12, but they broke that. So the players had 100 tickets to wow. dispose of. Now, in the black on the black market, you could go to a car dealership in those days, get a top-of-the-range saloon car with hand over your tickets deal done wow uh john didn't want to do that didn't want to deal with uh the spivs uh, and scalpers so barry went to him he said i told barry that john didn't want to do this barry said we'll we'll, ta- we'll take them off him so we went to john and we said give them to us barry really was the boss the, i was just a, <laughs> the messenger boy anyway um barry got the t- we got 100 tickets or 90 and uh, we'll get rid of them for you, John. And John was very decent. He said, look, anything anything over a grand, you can keep it. Lovely. Which is a lot. Yeah. yeah. John, John was on 20 quid a week. So off we went into town. And we're going around betting shops, casinos, dance halls, the plaza. We have 90 tickets. So a guy came to us and he said, how much do you want, guys? So Barry said, 1,500. Guy said, job done. Went back to his house. Uh he got his checkbook out and wrote us a check for 1500 We gave him the 90 tickets. The check bounced, and that was a year's wages for John. Gone. We had to go and, and tell him, and he was an absolute gentleman about it. It's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, if we'd have gone to someone else, a Bill Fowkes, God love him, he'd have killed us. But we, I had to live with that. And When I got my first cap in Paris, actually, two or three years later, two years later, the fee, match fee was 50 quid. I offered it to John. <laughs> and he didn't take it. He said, forget it. But it was a lot of money. He lost a year's wages. That was one of our little uh, get-rich-quick schemes. After several years at Manchester United, you moved on uh, initially yeah. to York City, though I think Birmingham City were also in for you. Why did you want to leave Manchester United? Well, I knew I wasn't going to be good enough uh, to be a top player. I wasn't strong enough. I had skill, but upper body strength and the things you need. And it was the era of best law. Bobby Charlton, John, you know, they had great players. Uh, so I, I thought I'd go and I wanted to play first-team football. 
I went to Busby, asked for a transfer. I said, look, son, nobody ever asked for a transfer from Manchester United. <laughs> I said, well, I'm asking for a transfer. It's no disrespect. Uh, I'd just like to go uh, and, you know, start over somewhere else. Uh, so he actually did something quite unpleasant. I knew from Noel Cantwell, the late Noel Cantwell, that um, Birmingham City, who were then in the first division or top division, that the manager there, Joe Mallett, wanted to buy me. He was prepared to offer 8,000, which was nothing. But Busby sold me to York for four and a half. He didn't want me resurfacing in the first division and possibly embarrassing him. He had sold John Giles to Leeds, who were in the second division, uh, and John did uh, resurface to yeah. embarrass him to the point where he said that uh, selling John was his biggest ever mistake. But it, Busby had that ruthlessness in him. I went to York and I was happy. I was in the first team. They'd just been promoted from Division 4 to 3. Um, and I arrived at the ground. I was met by the club secretary who uh, was wearing a suit and a tie. And he took me through a little tunnel out onto the pitch. And there was a man on a lawnmower mowing the pitch. Right. And he said, that's our manager, Tom Lockie. <laughs> oh, hello, hello. Welcome to the lower leagues now. Yeah, and Tom was a, a delightful man, a Scot, tall, uh, gentle uh, Scottish Scottish man. He'd played, he'd played at a good level in Scotland and uh, he'd played for York and he was now the manager. He just got promotion, but he was still mowing the... Alone. So it was very much upstairs, downstairs. And at that stage, as Barry said, I was, you know, very acutely aware of, you know, class mm. uh, and um, privilege uh, or lack of. So I wasn't too impressed uh, with the arrangements at York, I must say, or <laughs> elsewhere in football. But that was just a very vivid little cameo. Yeah. You went on pl- playing for York and in the mid-60s, you made your debut... Uh, for the Republic of Ireland. The Republic almost qualified for 66, yeah. and you made your debut in the playoff against, of all people, Spain, to go yeah. to to go to go England for the finals. We did, yeah. We beat Spain in Dublin. Yeah. They beat us 4-1 in Seville, so the playoff match was in Paris, but it was due to be in Highbury in London. And uh, the Spanish were afraid of that so many Irish, uh, London Irish, and we'd get so many people there. It was like a home game for us. So they said to the Football Association of Ireland, if you come to Paris, you can keep all the gate receipts. So the FAI did that deal. And when we got to Paris, it was at the time of fascism in Spain, Franco, uh, and there were uh, hundreds of thousands of Spanish exiles yeah. in, in Paris. So the ground was packed full of Spaniards. They had Luis Suarez, who was the then uh, European Footballer of the Year, great, great player. Uh, he played for Inter Milan, uh, and I was playing directly up to him. And John John Giles played that night. We lost one nil to a goal scored about ten minutes or fifteen minutes from the end, and we gave a very very good account of ourselves. Had we got a result, we'd have been in the '66 World Cup. That's a beautiful uh, exposition of the uh, the game itself and the importance and and, and the failure to quite qualify for that tournament. Um, but I, I think the build-up to the game was dominated by the delights of the city of Paris because you've now promoted yourself from the delights of, uh, of, yes. of Manchester to the delights of Paris. Yeah, unfortunately, um, a group of players <laughs> decided to go to um, that lovely place, Montmartre, where all the girls were. They're about 10. And I followed like a sh- like a sheep or a lamb. Yes, more I told, like that. I told you, I, I told you, I was mentored by Barry. Nothing much took place actually. It was it was more like a scene from a comedy movie. It was appalling. <laughs> and yet, but we did it. It was on the Monday night. We were playing on the Wednesday. Uh, 
it was kind of a bit of an eye-opener. But I think it was a response. The players were so sickened that the match should have been in London at yeah. their own mentors uh, selling them out. I'm right in thinking that you, several months later, you actually attended the, the 1966 World Cup final. Yeah, I did. Um, in fact, I attended the semi-final and the final. Um, yeah, um, amazingly. Um, and it, I think that day will stay with me. I think anyone who was in England on that day will remember it. Um, and those great English heroes, that vivid image of Nobby Styles. And Nobby is very, very um, unwell at the moment. And so many of them, uh, Jimmy Greaves, that story, that awful story yes. we've seen recently of Jimmy and his bad stroke. Jimmy wasn't in the team, but he was in the squad and was a great English player of that period. The late Bobby Moore. Uh, these guys did something for England uh, that will never be forgotten. And I don't think uh, they were, a lot of them had to sell their caps and medals because they hadn't got, you know, a few bob at the end of their lives. So I thought the Jimmy Greaves story was particularly poignant. I think the Sun wanted to raise 30,000. They couldn't get it. Very bad. Well, I understand that uh, Moose have uh, now uh, has actually been sorted out, but the, the initial response in particular just makes you think, have we forgotten what these people did? Not not for themselves, but for the country as well. Did you want England to win? You're from a fairly, um, <laughs> uh, how can I put this? Let's just use the word. You're from a Republican background in Ireland. Um, did you want England to win the final? I did. Um, I had been living in England then for six years, and I, I loved English people. I really did. I liked their decency and their moderation, um, and I liked the country uh, very much indeed. Mm. Um, my mother was the Republican really, ah. in our family, but she <laughs> came from a Republican background. But Republicanism wasn't very active in Ireland in the 50s and 60s. No. In fact, the IRA uh, almost disbanded themselves. There was only a handful of them anyway. Uh, this was before the Troubles, uh, which yes. began, of course, in the 60s, late 60s, mm. uh, and the civil rights marches. This is before that. So I did want England to win, and, you know, Bobby well, Chart and Bobby Ward, I thought they were a wonderful side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your, your spell at York was uh, short but sweet. Um, why did you leave York, and uh, how did you end up uh, at the place where you became a legendary footballer, <laughs> um, Millwall? Well, I was at York for five months, and I... I'd been hungry for first-team football for so long. Uh, I just loved it. I loved playing. Even if there's only 5,000 people there at Bootham Crescent, which is the home matches, I just loved it. I played really well for those few months. And uh, Millwall came and offered to pay twice as much as York had paid, which is about eight or 9,000. A man called Billy Gray was the manager of um, Millwall, a wonderful man, played in the Nuts Forest team that won the Cup. And Billy took me to Millwall, where they had a really great side, wonderful side. They'd been promoted, and they were going to be, and I was a part of the promotion, second successive promotion. Really, really good side, full of genuine Millwall legends like Brian Snowden and Tommy Wilson, and ah, great characters. And I loved Millwall. I loved uh, that part of London. The people, they were so passionate, and they were in the middle, of course, of an unbeaten run, which would end up breaking the football league record. I think. To, to establish for people just how good this uh, this uh, this team was, a team that went three years unbeaten at home, got promoted twice, um, and I, you know, I, I I often tell the story that um, my uh, I've been writing and broadcasting with Danny Baker, my only showbiz chum yes. for the past thirty years, 
and occasionally when we get wrapped around a few cold ones, um, we'll, we'll get to that place that sometimes men get to where there's nothing else left to say. The reverie begins. <laughs> and then he will then he will then start to name the Millwall team um, of uh, of those late 60s. And he, it, when I told him, when I tweeted out that I was doing this show with you, looking for questions, Danny said this. Remind, he said, just say Stepney, Gilchrist, yeah. Cripps, Jones, yeah. Snowden, yeah. Wilson, yeah. Rowan, Julians, Brown, yeah. Dunphy and Neil. Yeah, um, that new, that side yeah. is legendary in South London. Um, yeah. Talk to me about a the side and how good they were, uh, the people in the team, and also the relationship to Millwall's fans, um, who are yeah. for better or worse, and we all know the story um, themselves, so much a part of the club. Yeah, they they were very very vocal and passionate, um, and the old Dan. Uh, the well, the acoustics in the old Dan were amazing. I mean, you would think that we only maybe eight nine thousand sometimes, sometimes more, of course, when we were doing well. Uh, but the noise they made, uh, and I think there used to be a saying, there still is in football, perhaps that uh, Londoners, Southerners don't like to go up north and play. Well, I tell you what, Northerners didn't like to come and play in, at the Den because uh, we got stuck into them. Uh, with some terrific professionals, Brian Snowden, the late Brian Snowden was the captain. Uh, Tommy Wilson, very good players. Harry Cripps, of course, is a genuine uh, uh, legend in in that part of London. And Harry was terrific, terrific fun. Uh, he was Barry Fry with knobs on, really. <laughs> really? Uh, if, if he, I, well, in, in a good way. I, the day I arrived to sign for Millwall, he was taking these LPs out of his car. And I just signed that week, and he said, oh, Eamon, come here. He said, Mike, come here, look at this. He said, 12 and 6, he said, to you, special price. So I said, okay, thanks. I was going back to Manchester the following weekend. I saw it in W.A. Smith, so 7 and 6. <laughs> <laughs> but Harry was a, he was a real, uh, a real character, sadly dead now. Um, uh, Barry Rowan was a wonderful footballer. Billy Neal is still at the club. Uh, Billy and I remain in contact and friends. A Scots player, terrific player. Uh, they were they were good and the fans were part of it. And we were going for the record. I think it was 56 matches unbeaten. And the last five, the pressure was really on and we needed the very last one, which Danny should know, uh, but it was Carlisle. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, it, Carlisle. And we went 1-0 down to a bloody good side uh, where Chris Balderstone, who was a wonderful cricketer as well, yes. played cricket for Yorkshire in England, I think, and is dead, is dead now. Um, he was their, their leader. And they went 1-0, 1-0 up. And we crucified them. We nailed them to the floor in the last 20 minutes. Harry scored. The whole crowd went mad. That was the record done. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. And I don't think anyone who's in that ground would because a lot of people had moved out from Bermondsey and from, you know, out to the suburbs, uh, Catford and places like that. But they still brought the kids back uh, into the old den, you know, back to their yeah. what was the the community and that the, the, the where their the roots were. It was very much a roots thing. Lots of people came from quite a far distance, from Kenton places, to go back to the den uh, to see the lions. I mean, and indeed that side. Almost in 1972, almost got into the top league of English football as well. Just missed out by Whisker. Yeah, Benny Fenton, Billy Gray was sacked because uh, he he wanted to buy Rodney Marsh for 15 grand or 18 grand, which would have been the steal of the century. And uh, Mickey Purser, who was the, then the owner and chairman, wouldn't give him the money. So 
Billy walked and Benny Fenton came and Benny uh, transformed the team. He bought really well. Keith Weller, Derek Posse, uh, Barry Bridges, uh, a new goalkeeper, Brian King came. So he, he was able to, you know, oversee a transformation in the team, a transition from one group of players to another. Happily, I survived the transition um, and we had a very, very good team. Uh, Weller and Posse were outstanding players. Yeah, Keith uh, Weller went on to play for England, of course. Yeah, he did, yeah. Absolutely. In your time at Millwall, which of course covers most of your professional playing time, I think it's fair to say that uh, the intelligence that Barry Fry re- referred to and, and uh, having views about things outside of the world of football came to their own. I know you were involved with the anti-apartheid movement, but also you became the PFA um, official for Millwall, the PFA you know, the representative, yeah. um, at a time when... But the PFA, let's be put it this way, wasn't as powerful as it is now. It wasn't, no. Um, it had been very powerful when Jimmy Hill was the leader, and that's when the maximum wage was lifted. Yeah, the in George Eastman case and all that, yeah. Of course, in 1961. But it had, no, it wasn't very powerful, and no one really wanted it. The job entailed nothing more than collecting the fees, which was always hard work. <laughs> but, uh, and you never got them until the day before you were going to Manchester, which was always a Monday. So you'd have to catch the lads, you'd have to get them, uh, almost get a gun out to get the subs. <laughs> and then you go to Manchester and uh, sit around drinking coffee. Uh, but uh, Gordon Taylor was about two yards, two miles ahead of us. And he was there was a, there was a vacuum there, which he filled. Um, and yeah, they're, it, it, they're powerful. They're powerful now. At least they're wealthy. Yeah, well, they're certainly wealthy. That, that's undoubtedly the case. Um, you went to your first PG, PFA AGM with one Terry Venables. Yes, I did. On the train yeah. up to Manchester. That's right. And uh, I had played against Terry when he played for Spurs uh, against us in a cup match, and I knew him uh, and I liked him. He was he he's, he is very likable, um, personable, funny guy. He also had been a pop singer he'd written a couple of books i think he wrote a movie yeah um but when i started talking about football and reform and all of that he said i give us a break Eamon. you know <laughs> it's a it's it's a jolly we're going on you know and we were on the train he said more to listen to this old crap you know for three hours or whatever it took to get to manchester in those days so i it was a kind of rude awakening and when i got there the atmosphere was very much you know let's have a bit of lunch and blah and let's organise the next golf outing. But there were reforms that were badly needed, and the way young people were treated, the way young footballers who weren't going to make it were not educated. There were things that needed to be done, and as recently as what? We're talking about Jimmy Greaves uh, just uh, last week. And stuff like that still isn't done. You were involved with the anti-apartheid movement as well. I was, yeah. Um, It was very, very shocking to think that in sport... Uh, apartheid in South Africa could determine the colour of a person's skin, could determine whether they could represent their country, um, was deeply shocking. The Basil de Oliveira affair uh, was really shocking as well. It was very much an issue, um, apartheid. And it, 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 I don't generally want to feel people should mix politics and sport, but this was different because the politics was coming into the sport and, and apartheid determined that black Cricketers, footballers, rugby players could not represent their country. Uh, and, of course, in a, in a wider sense, uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa was repugnant to any notion of human rights. So I I was interested. I did go on marches. I went on anti-Vietnam marches as well. Um, How did this go I down with, with, with your fellow footballers and with the club? Uh, the club didn't like it when they found out about it. 
the lads generally were fine because they knew I wasn't, you know, a poser. They knew I felt it. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely believed it. I think if lads know you genuinely believe something, uh, there's no problem with footballers. If you were going around preaching in the dressing room, well, then I think you'd get short answers. Uh, and you'd, you don't want to be telling lads what they should think. If there's ever an issue, all you've got to say, look, this is what I believe. What you believe is your business. As I mentioned, in 1971-72, um, Millwall almost got promoted. I wonder if you could talk to me about the, the latter stages of the season, Eamon, because on the final day of the season, at the Den, there were 20,000 people at the old yeah, Den. at least. Uh, and <laughs> I think they ended up with some pre- premature celebrations as well, as, as so often happened in those days, that not all the games ended on the same day. And I think there might be some confusion about, about whether you were up or not. Yeah, we. what happened was Birmingham were our rivals for the second spot and they were playing away at in Sheffield. Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. Sheffield Wednesday. And uh, if they lost and we won, we were up. And people had transistor radios uh, around the ground and all of a sudden, with 20 minutes to go, we were 2-0 up against Preston and the ground lit up and everyone was cheering and the message came onto the pitch Birmingham are losing, uh, so all we've got to do is hold on, which we did for 20 minutes. The crowd invaded the pitch. We were carried off shoulder high. Yeah. And uh, if it was actually Brian Moore, who's on ITV, uh, Brian Moore was the commentator. This was amazing because Millwall, of course, the only London club never to have been promoted. And uh, we got in the dressing room and Dennis Burnett had switched on the transistor. And the first thing we heard, and Birmingham have pulled the, the fat out of the fire in Sheffield. And that, Dennis picked up the transistor and smashed it on the ground in front of him. And we were devastated. So all they had to do, Birmingham, was go and beat Leighton Orient uh, the following Wednesday, which was, ah, that's as close as we came to the big time. Uh, and in those days, only two clubs went up. And we had a team that would have done well. We had a good footballing team. It was really, really sad. And sad for our supporters, of course. The Republic of Ireland, we heard about you making your debut in a World Cup qualifier, but I think it's fair to say they were, they were not the power they've gone on to be in, in, in European and world football since then. No, we never had enough uh, good players. We had outstanding players. John Giles, uh, perhaps the best of them. But Tony Dunn, uh, left back for Manchester United in the team that won the European Cup, as it then was in 1968. Tony was a brilliant player. Uh, Andy McAvoy played... Had a forward for Blackburn, leading goal scorer in the first division uh, at times. Pat Dunn, Manchester United goalkeeper. Noel Cantwell, West Ham, great player. Noel, great leader. Charlie Hurley, who was a big man. Mm-hmm. Um, we were always short of two or three, four players uh, of real quality. And it was very badly managed. When I started playing, the team was picked by what were known as the Big Five. They were five suits uh, and the manager... Was it some kind of selection panel, yeah? Yeah, selection panel. It was a bad, bad, bad idea. Um, And they were picking the team. They always included one League of Ireland player uh, who was usually way, way out of his depth. And Uh, and of course, while I understand the, the politics behind that, it's totally unfair on that person as well, isn't it? I thought it was, but they didn't, you know, sometimes guys would go white. They were shaking, desperate stuff. In Dalyman Park, where we played at home matches, there was a holy water font, and they'd 
they drink it nearly before they went out. Uh, it was unfair on everybody, really, but it was a, a way of... It was a bad gesture, a stupid gesture. But some of the, the better players didn't often turn up. Don Revy, I know, didn't want John to be going anywhere near the Irish team because he was such a pivotal figure for Leeds. So, hence, I got uh, uh, 10 caps I shouldn't have got when John didn't show. Um, so... But you, um, you, you did some. I mean, again, you're, you're, I'm gonna. I, I'm using the word activism here with a small a. Your own activism meant that you were part of the the uh, yeah. the, 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 the the little coterie of footballers who put a stop to the big five eventually. Yeah, it's a very funny story, Danny. We hated it. We knew it was wrong. Uh, the manager should have the choice of player. So John, I I let it. Started it. John was a powerful player. Alan Kelly, who's great uh, goalkeeper, of course, a senior man. Yeah. yeah. So we went to them. We said, we're not having this. We're going to go on strike if you don't give the manager, who was then Mick Megan, an Everton player and a very good player, if you don't give him the power to pick his own team. Uh, And the big five, eventually, after an 18-month struggle, were abolished. Of course, the next thing that happened was I was out of the team. Mick Megan left you out, did he? Yeah, well, he did, Mick, yeah. And uh, this is a classic case of a turkey voting for Christmas. Uh, but it was it was the right thing to do, and it was quite funny. I can laugh at it now. I was crying at the time. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I couldn't start a campaign. Bring okay. back the big five. It didn't sound like a good slogan. They were great, yeah. Um, I hesitate to remind you, because I'm sure you know, of the 23 times you turned out for the Republic, you only won on two occasions. That's right. That gives you some a feeling of where they were. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, and I know... Some of my former colleagues say this, there's a correlation there between uh, my presence and, and defeat. I mean, for Ireland to reach the latter stage of the World Cup tournament in the meanwhile, and of course, all the, all the glory and controversy that's gone with it, even as talented writer you couldn't have sat down and scripted some of the stuff that's happened. No, we had a golden generation um, of of players. Um, Paul McGrath, Roy Keane, uh, Kevin Moran before that. Andy Townsend was really, really good player for Ireland. Dennis Irwin, uh, people like that. We we had one, Mark Lawrenson. We, uh, Jack, Jack Charlton very cleverly uh, got players who were qualified to play for us through their grannies, what's called the granny rule. Uh, Ray Houghton, John Aldridge. So we had a wonderful team uh, for a number of years, a really outstanding team. Uh, and uh, that got to two World Cup finals, 94 uh, and 90, mm. and uh, qualified for the European Championship in 1988. So uh, this was heady stuff for us. Indeed, and we'll, we'll, we'll get another time to talk about some more of that a little later on. I want to make as well the point here that it's during your playing career that your second career as a as a journalist and an author and broadcaster actually starts. It's not a heady start. It's something called the South London Press right. and Dumphy's Diary. That's right. I had acquired a reputation through the anti-apartheid stuff and uh, um, perhaps agitating for communism or the Labour mm-hmm. Party and a bit gone on anti-Vietnam protests uh, as an unusual person. So. Mm-hmm. They decided they were Millwall. Millwall was our local team. So they said, would you write a piece every week? And I thought um, it would be a nice thing to do. They said, you won't have to do anything. We'll send a guy down and uh, he'll talk to you and he'll go and he'll write it up. So they sent the guy down and I had my doubts about it anyway. And the guy they sent down, don't like the look of him because I'm going to be saying things and there's going to be trouble here. So I better do it myself. So I said, I'll do it, but I'll have to write it myself. And they looked a bit dubious. 
I sat down at the kitchen table uh, and it took me two weeks to write the first 700 word column. I really grafted and grafted uh, at it um, and writing is hard work as anyone knows Mm -hmm. who's done it um, and especially short pieces. So I I just did it myself and it it didn't go down well with the club because I talked about a lot of things that were wrong in football uh, by inference. Of course, I was criticising my own club as well. Um, but it was good for me. It was it was good training. Uh, it was good discipline. And I wrote a book, Only a Game, at that time. Uh, you did write a book. And I, I'm sorry <clears> to interrupt. <throat> I shouldn't interrupt you, but I will. Because um, for those who don't know, listening to our voices doing this program, Only a Game, which is a, a diary of, uh, essentially a diary of a, one of Eamon's seasons at Millwall Football Club. I sometimes um, blanch when people tell me that Fever Pitch was the first great book of the modern era of English football, because uh, your diary uh, and that uh, that book, Only a Game, is is in fact the first uh, pr- uh, of the modern kind of writing about English football. And I think if everybody had their own, that w- that would be a truth w- more widely known. Advert ends. Carry on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, the Fever Pitch is a great book. I did a reading actually with Nick Hornby uh, in Charing Cross Road a very, very long time when he was launching it, and it was a wonderful. And beautiful oh no, absolutely, book. absolutely. But, uh, but, but your book only a game, of history, yeah. Yeah, it was only a game question mark, and the question mark was important because it it was uh, after that near miss to get in the first division as it then was um, that I and. I was dropped near the end of that season, but I was full of hope for the next season. I said, why am I doing this? I'm 27, 28. Uh, I'm not getting rich. I'm not getting famous. Uh, so I'm going to chronicle the whole day from day one of pre-season. And it only lasted six months because I was sold at the end of six months. So it roughly was a six-month period mm. of uh, despair. It was Diary of a Loser. I, that was the only way I was only ever going to get published. They certainly weren't going to publish a book about my great highlights in football no. so but I, I i just thought it was um perhaps an antidote to the banality of some so many football books in those days were ghosted and they weren't very good and they didn't take the football lover and the person who bought the book because they loved the player didn't take them inside the world of football which i thought was cheating really uh, you really ought to if you're going to write a book do it right so that's what i endeavored to do and of course you got some advice about journalism and i had no idea whether you were planning to become a journalist writer punter call it pundit call it what you like um, but you got some advice from one of the great figures of uh, british yes. football um, in in the middle part of the 20th century the the great danny blanchflower yeah, Danny captained the Spurs' uh, double-winning team. He was a great player, had a great mind. He wrote a column every week in the Sunday Express, and it was wonderful. Uh-huh. It was subversive, uh, intelligent, uh, sceptical. It was delightful, and he wrote it himself. And I, I kind of didn't know Danny, but I, I wrote to him, and I said, look, oh, I, I played once against him in a cup match, but he... Um, he said, come and meet me. And we met for some reason in Victoria Station in London and we had a cup of coffee. And I said, look, I want to be a journalist. I want to do it. He said, well, you can do it, he said, but do it honest. He said, tell it as it is. Don't be afraid because they'll try to get you. That was Danny's thing, you know. And of course, they tried to get Danny and Bill Nicholson wanted Danny to succeed him as manager of Spurs and he'd have been a wonderful manager. Board wouldn't have it. Danny was an outcast. And even lots of players didn't like Danny because he was so... 
um, unyielding in his convictions. But that was very good advice. It encouraged me because I had that kind of temperament anyway. But it was inspiring that he took the trouble. And we spent a couple of hours there drinking tea and coffee. And it was a valuable two hours, one of the most valuable two hours I ever spent. Eamon, after your um, long stint at, at, at Millwall, which, as I say, has left you an indelible uh, legend in that part of southeast London, uh, you continue your career at first Charlton Athletic and then Reading. And actually, uh, you're, you're, you're successful at both clubs, involved in promotions. Talk, talk us about why you left Millwall and went to Charlton. They're, of course, they're, they're very close together, the clubs, geographically, but uh, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're not great rivals. The Millwall fans just don't take any notice of Charlton, do they? No, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's just sort of a quiet little backwater and there's nothing happening there or at least that's the way it was in it. when I was playing I went to Charlton Benny Fenton the manager didn't really want me to leave but um, I wanted to leave I wanted to start again because I wasn't really uh, sure to get my my place in the team and that was always the spur went to Charlton um, where at first a former Irish colleague Theo Foley was the, was the coach um, and he wanted me he played with me for Ireland um, and then he got the sack and Andy Nelson came. Andy had been the great centre-half in the Ipswich team that Alf Ramsey managed very successfully. To win the title, To yeah. win the title. And Andy was a big, hard, classic uh, set English centre-half. Big, tough, strong man. And he did not like me at <laughs> all as a footballer or as a person. Bolshe was the word he used. And we had an old Etonian chairman there who uh, was quite a funny guy. He, actually, he quite liked me, actually. Michael Glickstein. Michael Glickstein, that's right. And you had to call him um, Mr. Michael, which seemed to me, uh, this is what, 70, 74, yeah. 73, 74, 75. I thought Mr. Michael in my ass. So, uh, but he, he came to the matches and Andy was, was a real heavy dude and he would kick ass no trouble but when mr michael appeared mr michael he was mr michael this is mr michael Suck up. yeah i used to call him mr glickston or mr chairman ah my little commie friend he actually <laughs> quite liked me he was an old Etonian. they owned i think they owned buckinghamshire or something something like that there was no atmosphere there I mean, I the, have no... the fact of the matter is, the club, whatever else you say about Charlton we have to remind people that it, it was in possession of the biggest club ground. Never mind your old oh, Trappers, yeah. the biggest club ground in English football. Seven, I mean, in the mid-70s there, I went to see the Who two successive summers, in the, about the time you were playing there, and there yeah. were 75,000 people in the ground. Yeah, it was vast. Imagine what it was like to play with three and, or 4,000. Not good, I imagine. Not good. I, play, I played for Charlton there when, against Brighton when Brian Clough was the manager of Brighton. Uh, it's about the most memorable thing and the other thing Keith Peacock who's a very very good friend of mine Keith uh, was a wonderful servant to Charlton and in the very last game of the promotion year we had he dropped Keith which was absolutely savage thing to do he was an unbelievable guy and he tough uh, but he was glad to get rid of me and he gave me a free transfer uh, and, to, to uh, Reading well Charlie Hurley was the manager of Reading and I played with Charlie and they hadn't gained promotion in 50 years uh, and he, he said I have a side Eamon they just need a bit of leadership and no one had ever thought of me as a leader before so I grew two inches and went to Reading and Robin Friday was their uh, star player a brilliant player but Robin would be popping pills and 
drinking, loved the girls. He was a big, handsome guy, legend, iconic figure now, a real iconic figure. I mean, amazing book written about him. And of course, the band The Super Furry Animals um, wrote a song about him, The Man Don't Give a... Tell us about the Robin. Book, well, the book was called The Greatest Player You've Never Seen. Yeah. And he, he was he was big, big man, huge. He had a big scar on his stomach, about nine inches long, where he'd fallen from an apartment onto a spiked railing. <gasps> uh, he was strong as an ox. He was uh, asthmatic. Uh, he was great footballer, two great feet, good in the air, huge target man. You couldn't. He was fearless. And he was definitely the man for that for that team, but how Charlie said he won't. He turns up, get a hold of him, Raymond. So I actually liked him because there was a bit of rock and roll in me. There still mm-hmm. is, and not as much as Robin. But there was him and a guy called Minty Murray, John Murray, who was a very very good player as well. Um, and they were good lads. And we, I said, look guys, we got a chance here, and uh, we, if we if we stick at it, if we work. We'll do the stuff afterwards. Let's get the game out of the way first. Mm. And we kind of worked on that basis and got promotion. But Robin was a fabulously charismatic guy with a heart of gold. And tragically, he died. Um, He could have played at a much, much higher level. Uh, He could have been, you know, a top player. He wasn't quick, but he had every other thing. And, you know, I'm sure Reading people will never forget him. And we went up north, you know, the, to the Hartley Pools and places like that. And Robin was fearless yeah. and a leader. Great, great guy. One of the most fascinating people I ever met. Very intelligent. Very into music and all of that and stuff. Very, very sad, as you say, that only 38 years of age yes. when, when he went from us. Promoted then, as you say, in 75, 76. Um, Charlie Hurley, as you said, who had been a, a, a teammate in the Republic of Ireland team, yeah. amongst others. Um he he left in unusual circumstances. Managed to often retire, resign after a game, but no, Charlie resigned at half time. <laughs> uh, we we got promotion, but he, he didn't really. There were a lot of dissent. The players didn't get the wage rises they they expected. Reading at that time was a mean club, and uh, Charlie looked after his directors as he felt obliged to do, but the players didn't forgive him. And about a couple of months into the season. We were getting a hiding at home, and uh, we, he, we we went back in the dressing room at halftime, and he said, "That's it." <laughs> and he 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 used some language that I'm sure Talksport wouldn't appreciate. He said, "I'm out of here." He said, "But first, and it was freezing." He said, "You guys get back out on that pitch," and we had to stand out there for ten minutes. Oh. And he was gone. He resigned at halftime. And uh, Morris Evans, a very nice man and a very very good coach, who was his assistant, took over then. Uh, so that was the end of my football career, really. Um, I, he, he gave me a free transfer in August. It was, this is August before. This is 12 months I was available for. It was the earliest free transfer in history. Um, there was also, uh, if I might bring you back, in the middle of your time at, um, at Reading, there was a, another example of just how much the game has changed. Um, when a local oh, yeah. butcher made a fantastic offer to you all. Well, he said he'd been saying for years... If Reading ever get promotion, I give the lads a heifer, a bullock, or whatever yeah, a it bullock, is, yeah. a cow, yeah. a bullock, free. And we did. We went to the mart. Uh, we got the, the the thing. We patted it on the head. I have a lovely picture of Charlie assuring that everything would be okay. Took it away to this slaughterhouse. And then the following Friday, 
we were to go to the ground and pick up the steaks, our, the lovely steaks, the, steaks, and, the T-bone steak, yeah. fillet steak, all the stuff. <laughs> so we we got to the ground. We got a little bag, small brown paper bag, full of mints, 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 mints. <laughs> so we said to Charlie, we couldn't find him. So we said to the secretary, "Where's where's the steak? Where's the fillet? Where's the sirloin? Where's the T-bone?" I don't know. He said, "We don't know. We never got that." So obviously the directors of Reading, who were not exactly dying for a steak, uh, <laughs> took all the good stuff and gave us the mints. It was absolutely something out of a movie, but uh, it happened. And mod- modern footballers would actually say you were lying if you told them that story now. That's of course. a true story. Uh, absolutely. And you finished your career, if I might say, um, in, in uh, back in Ireland with, with uh, yeah. uh, the most beautifully named, if not necessarily the best team in Ireland, Shamrock Rovers. Well, they were they are the most uh, storied club in Ireland, mm-hmm. they, Manchester United of Ireland, if you like. Um, and John Giles went, went back there. We thought we'd build a kind of Celtic in Ireland, but we couldn't do it. I played for one year. Uh, we won the FAI Cup, which they had a great tradition of winning. Uh, I got my winner's medal, and but I'd made my mind up. I was going to try to be a journalist, uh, so I went off to do that. With your playing days over... Um, we can now talk a little bit, I think, about um, a career that's uh, seen you a, a, a writer about football. And we'll come on to your other books a little later on, but a writer about football in the newspapers and then on to uh, a career on television, which, as I've been banging on here uh, many, for many years, sees yourself, Johnny Giles, Bill O'Hurley, um, absolutely um, being a, a, a brilliant and uh, revolutionary at the way you talk about the game. Talk to me about the writing first. I mean, because you, uh, uh, people will need to know that there are a lot of newspapers in, in Ireland, particularly in the Republic, and they take sports writing very seriously. Well, they do now. We have some great sports writers. David Walsh uh, is, and Paul Kimmage are two of the best. Uh, but when I, was, when I started out uh, in journalism in what would it have been uh, 78, mm-hmm. uh, the sports writing was very poor here very very poor and england was the place it was much better sports writing in england was much better uh it was it wasn't great in ireland it was also a closed shop so i couldn't get a i couldn't get a job it was a you know cash 22 have you had any stuff published no well then you can't get a card and you couldn't get a card you know so yeah it took me two years to break in i started writing about soccer uh and i was quite rigorous um i did my own thing um and I tried to be as good as I could be. Um, Jack Charlton came along uh, in 86, and Jack, the international team, had a low ebb. Jack inherited a wonderful team. Lawrence and McGrath, uh, Ronnie Whelan, just Ray Houghton, Ray Aldridge, John Aldridge, yep. you know, great, great players. And uh, he, he had them, Jack had it in his mind that uh, he was going to a little island in the, South Pacific, where they'd <laughs> never seen a football before, and he had Kevin Moore and all these guys. Anyway, he had them playing a Wimbledon style, and that's the way he, he stuck at it. And he was very successful, terrified, put foreigners under pressure. I remember a great Spanish team coming to Dublin and losing one nil, and they went off the pitch shaking their heads. They'd never seen anything like it. Liam Brady was playing as well and uh, he ended Liam's career actually and Liam of course works on television with us now and is a brilliant uh, yeah. pun- analyst and was a great player uh, Jack just did it his way I dissented the country was delirious when we qualified for the 88 um, 
European Championship and then drew England and then beat England. That's the day that everyone will remember until they die. And Jack was responsible, even though we played lousy football. And this was a really, really top team. And I was the dissenting voice just through all of that. I was arguing the impossible, that this could be better. People said, what's better than qualifying? Yeah. I said, with these players, you know, we should be more ambitious. Uh, but Jack became a national hero. Um, and that was pretty uncomfortable uh, test for someone writing journalist. And I was on television as well. But that, it, it kind of blooded me. It got me used to it. It certainly didn't make me popular. No. Um, but I, I was lucky to have good editor in the Sunday Independent, a man called Angus Fanning, and in RTE, Tim O'Connor. And if you have good people who believe that you're doing it your way and the right way, uh, and it's interesting, they'll stick by you. So I was lucky in that regard. You were, and uh, it is, uh, as well as that writing, it is uh, with the TV punditry on RTE um, that you've become, I'd say, one of the most famous faces, recognisable faces in modern Ireland. Um, and the person, along with Liam Brady, that you do the punditry with um, is Johnny Giles, who we know has been a lifelong uh, friend and supporter of yours um, from the days together at Manchester United. I'd like to say he joins us now here on uh, My Sporting Life. Uh, good evening, Johnny. Hello, Danny. How are you? Thank you very much indeed. Say hello to Eamon. Hello, Eamon. <laughs> How are you, John? How are you ahead? My head's in good form. Yeah, <laughs> he, was, he was actually speculating a little early off air, Johnny, about how your head might be this morning. I'm OK. I'm OK. <laughs> Just about. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the, the two of you have been uh, around each other for a lifetime. Uh, first of all, Johnny, let me ask you, because, um, you know, because you played uh, for a top, top team and, and were in the Republic the Republic's team for a decade or so, sometimes people forget what a good player Eamon was. Yeah, uh, Eamon was a real street player from the old days. He played, uh, you know, Landy straight in the street as I did and many, many other people. Good skill, good control. Uh, you had to because we used to play with bouncers, what was called bouncers in those days. Uh, about, uh, you know, a rubber ball, about twice the size of a tennis ball. Yeah. And much harder to control, obviously, uh, than the big ball. So when we went to play with the big ball, we'd learned our trade, as it were. And Eamon was a, was a typical uh, street player. Good control, good technique midfield player and a real um, intelligent player what we'd call footballers real footballers Was there anything about the young Eamon Dunphy that would have led you to believe Johnny that this was a fellow who would go on to be um, one of the most respected and occasionally feared writers and analysts and broadcasters about the game um, <laughs> well, he always had a rebel streak. I met Eamon, well, I'm five years older than Eamon, and Eamon played for a team called Stella Maris, and he lived on Richmond Road, where, uh, where, where the, the ground was situated. So he, he was there a lot. Uh, I think he used to spend most of his time with Stella Maris. So I joined Stella Maris a year before I went to Manchester United, and that's when I met Eamon. Uh, and he was very, very well known in the club. I think he was only 10 or 11 at that particular time. Well, when you'd be having a game of tennis and that, Eamon at times would nick the ball, take the ball, the tennis ball, and uh, run away with it. So <laughs> there, was a, <laughs> there was always a bit of a rebel streak in himself. <laughs> uh, but uh, he was, he was um, you know, well, well known at uh, Stella. He grew up at Stella. Then, when, then, then I went to Manchester United, and Eamon came to Manchester United five years later. So we've known each other. Uh, a long time. Yeah. But Eamon was always a very bright, uh, very, very bright lad. Self-educated lad, actually, then, you know, and uh, uh, a great command of the English language. And he was, uh, that's, I think that's what's made him such a, a good broadcaster. 
Uh, he can he can debate anything, especially football. Um, does his writing, as we know. You know, he's made a great career for himself, Eamon. I mean, he had, I think it was nine years at Millwall. Uh, as you say, a very, very good, uh, what was then, second division team. He played uh, He played for the... I, was, I played when he made his, his international debut. Mm-hmm. He got 23 caps for... He's, for he's, t- he's told us that he got most of those, though, were the days when you weren't available. Um, well... I think that helped. <laughs> <laughs> the two of you, for the last couple of decades, have discussed football on on the uh, the national broadcast in Ireland, RTE, yes. the Premier League in particular. The flavour of the programme is that the truth tries to gets told, whether yes. whether it embarrasses yes. important people or not, in a way that would just be unheard of, uh, particularly on the BBC uh, here in this country. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, I had the idea. I went in there in 1978 and there was a very good head of sport who had a background actually in print journalism, which I think was very important. And he was a, a huge character, Tim O'Connor. And he said to me, no one watches soccer on RTE. They watch it on ITV, BBC. I said, well, look, here's why. It's too bland, you know, and you've got journalists there. You need football people there and you need to be more uh, rigorous in your assessment and he had a great anchorman, Bill O'Hurley. He died very recently. Very recently, yeah. Great loss, of course. To, it to, was, and to, a great, a great anchorman. He was yeah. up there with Des Lynham, you know, he had that touch. But he came from a current affairs and news background, and he was a newspaper man as well. So we got this journalistic vibe into things. We got anybody spouting banalities, we got them out. Uh, and we tried quite a few. I won't name them ex-footballers mm. or footballers. Uh, and they just weren't prepared to call it as they were seeing it. What we were trying to do, Danny, was create a situation where you talk in an animated and passionate and truthful way about the game while the light's on. You don't go all sheepish when the lights are on and, you know, talk in, in generalizations. You do that afterwards. But what normally I found happened was as soon as the programme was over, then people would tell you what they really thought. Oh, ridiculous. Let's get that into the studio was my idea. And I lived by it for a while. And I, I knew we needed John when this happened. In 1984, the European Championships uh, were played, I think, in Paris, in France. Um, and yeah. Platini was the man, the man on everyone's lips, in everyone's thoughts, as a great player. And I'd watched him play against Ireland in World Cup qualifiers, and John had played against him. And John had said to me, he's not a great player. He didn't fancy when he came to Dublin. Uh, And John played directly against him. So I went into the championship with this in my head. Anyway, I laid down a marker very early. I said, I don't think France will achieve much. I don't think they'll win. I don't think Platini is a great player. And on I went through the championship as Platini went on scoring goals. Uh Ah, the worst moment, the semi-final. I said to the anchor, Bill O'Hurley, today, Platini's going to be found out. This is a semi-final. I guess he'll Portugal, bo- I seem to think, yeah? Was it? Yeah, yeah, he'll, bo- yeah. he'll bottle it. Scored a hat-trick. <clears throat> so, I'm dead. I'm a dead pundit walking. Go on, limp on to the final. But funny enough, the press are having a ball. Everyone's having a ball. I can't go in the shop. And I meet John, who is in Dublin, I said, for a drink. I said, John... Was I wrong? He said, no, you were right, he said, but you shouldn't be saying it on television, Eamon. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided that then, I knew that we should get John, but John was media averse. He didn't like journalists, didn't like media. He was a quiet, decent guy, uh, but he was the most wise person I think everyone in England knows now and knew it certainly when he was playing. He was most respected for his wisdoms, 
knowledge. I said to Tim, let's get John, and Ortiz resisted. John came on the program, and there was the antidote, and he added wisdom, uh, a sense of uh, proportion, yeah. <laughs> and it strengthened the whole thing, and that's when it really took off. Ian is quite right. When I was in management, uh, I, I wasn't very, very good uh, with the press or to the press because I said my obligation was to the players and I never wanted to uh, imply any criticism of the players so I got a reputation of being very very cautious uh, and not being very very friendly to the press and Tim O'Connor who was a good pal of Damon and myself the head of sport as Eamon mentioned there uh, was very reluctant to employ me because they said well John's not going to say anything well the, the thing was uh, I was out of management then, so I was free to say what I wanted. With Eamon press for me to go on, I knew there was a reluctance, and I more or less told it to clear off. Uh, it went to the last minute, but anyway, they put me on. But it was only because Eamon insisted that I go on. And before I went on, uh, I must say, Danny, I always had a clear picture of what I wanted to say when I was free to say it. Sure. Because in my career, I played with and against great players. But what I found in the press generally, everybody was a great player because nobody would really say Joe Bloggs is not a great player. Uh-huh. And I felt I had an obligation uh, to the players who were genuinely great players to say it. Uh, and I would say if there wasn't, and between Eamon and myself, we actually told the truth in our own different ways because I felt I had an obligation to the game. Eamon, I think Eamon felt the same. We had an obligation to the game to tell the truth. I've got a few quotes here in front of me. I could, have, I could choose from hundreds, but just for fun, I'm going to throw a few of them at you. Um, and just to give people a flavour of the way you sometimes talk uh, on the television, more so, I think, than in your writing, which is, uh, by definition, a little bit more uh, controlled. Harry Kuehl um, played for Australia, played for Leeds in the semi-final of the Champions League. Here's you. He's fat and he's a clown, Bill. A fat clown for all to see. <laughs> what are you? I wasn't a big fan of Harry's actually. Nah. I thought Liverpool would have won that match. Uh, did the Champions League finally played in? Yeah, he did. We yeah. thought we we marvelled at Harry's survival in English football, given yeah. how little he contributed. Absolutely, Mick McCarthy. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, he is one of the biggest wingers in world football. He's a bloody Egypt. Yep, I said that. <laughs> yeah, and you stand by it. Well, I think he's he's done remarkable work at Wolves and at Ipswich. Uh, he was he he was an awful whinger with the Irish team over mostly over me and other people criticised him. I think Mick's a good fella. He you know he he wasn't my favourite footballer because they dropped David O'Leary and played Mick. That was one of Jack's most controversial things he ever did. But uh, Mick has done amazing work at it. Yeah, and, and he's I'm ta- a good man. And I'm taking I these quotes. I'm taking too. these quotes totally out of context. I totally understand that. The next one as well. I'm taking it out of context because a I know him and I know how big he is. Um, on John Hartson, this is while you're analysing a clip of him in action. <laughs> that is not the arse of a £7 million player. <laughs> I said that, yeah. I'm sure, and it wasn't. Yeah, OK. Uh, and uh, I, uh, Although he is, a, he is a good lad as well, John Hartson. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And just to show that you're, that you don't, you're an equal opportunity uh, person about, <laughs> about this sort of stuff, as recently as two weeks ago, um, you called Louis van Gaal the much-venerated and venerable uh, manager of Manchester United, no less, a total spoofer. What did you mean by that? Bullshit, exactly. I said, they, the, comment, the anchor said, what do you mean? I said, he's a bullshit. And that was the night they beat Bruges away from home, uh, I think, for 3 or 4 nil. Yeah, Rooney uh, got a hat-trick, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, I think time will show that Louis is a master. 
of uh, talking. Yeah, um, he's already getting on the nerves of the of the press in yeah. this country, and that's that's usually the the, the, the the thin end of the wedge for people. Yeah. Um, during the, your your long and distinguished career um, as a writer, uh, you've you've written uh, several books that I'm interested in, um, and perhaps the most unusual of those was the fact that um, Paul McGuinness, the manager of yeah. of you two. Um, at the height of their powers, asked you to write um, a book that became uh, titled "Unforgettable Fire: The Past, Present, and Future: The Definitive Biography of You 2 That was a, that was a, a, obviously a, you know you say you're a rock and roll kind of guy, um, but that was a departure for you. Yeah, um, he asked me um, if I'd do it. He said the band wanted me. They didn't know or like soccer, but they used to read my soccer stuff in a paper called the Sunday Tribune at the time, which was a highbrow. Version of our Sunday and the Sunday market here, like the Guardian, and the way I, they like the way I write, I'd write about soccer. It made them interested, made them want to know more. So they thought, "Will you do it?" And they were huge, of course, at the time, just before Unforgettable, uh, before their breakthrough album, which was um, Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree, mm-hmm. and I researched it in the two years before that, and uh, I couldn't give it away to a publisher. Then the Joshua Tree broke. They were on the front of Time magazine and I was able to sell the book and make a lot of money. Um, and it was very, very interesting. Bono's a very interesting guy um, and they're very interesting people. But I have to say, I was more rock and roll than they were because they're, they're good boys. They, yeah. don't do the, they don't do the throwing the television out of the window stuff, which is I probably would have liked a would bit more. Would have preferred more. a bit more of that. How do yeah. you, how, I mean, he's such an enormous figure still in Irish public life. What do you make of Bono? I like him. Uh, I think he's very bright. I know him well. I see him around the town. Um, and the, the people think he shouldn't be mixing with George Bush and Tony Blair and going to Davos and places like that. And I have mixed feelings about that. You mm. know, I think probably cultural icons like Bono should be outside throwing rocks. But him and Geldof, who I really admire, I admire Geldof, they're, they're best friends. They think it's better to be inside the tent working the room than outside throwing rocks. So, you know, that's an argument you could spend a long time over. But personally, I like him. Uh, you're also uh, the biographer of another person who divides opinion, not just in Ireland, of course, but uh, every, and virtually everywhere he puts his foot, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, Roy Keane. Um, how did you come involved with Roy? He, his manager, Michael Kennedy, or his solicitor, asked me if, if I'd be interested in writing his autobiography. I was um, amazed, and pri- I felt it was a, you know, a, a privilege. Uh, nice to be asked. Hmm. I'd always written um, about Keane, the same as everyone else, as I saw it. But some of the papers here, in when he was a young guy, were savage to him because he had a rock and roll period as well. Roy, you know, got into trouble. But I liked him. When I met him, I liked him. Uh, he's very charming, very charismatic guy. But, you know, in recent years, I think um, he's been tiresome, to be honest. Uh, we did our stuff. The book sold, uh, I think it was the second biggest uh, sale of a sports book in Britain ever. Only Dickie Bird sold more. Um, he's very compelling figure but i think he's lost his way so i went from being a fan to not being a fan and just purely on a, on a piece of football analysis um obviously he had that season at sunderland where they got over 100 yeah. points and the team was absolutely flying yeah and I, I wondered whether roy could could um translate all of that inner fire let's put, use that word that he has yeah um and even overcome his difficulty sometimes with relating to other people 
uh, and turn it into it and being a great football manager because there's no formula. Managers no. And I'm, now I'm not sure that he's going to make it. No, he won't. I don't think. I think he inherited there a team that had just come down with a lot of Premier League players in it. Uh, and then when someone like him arrives, it's charismatic, the whole thing took off and the, some of the fans are great. But for the long run elsewhere, and I've talked to players who've worked for him in clubs and it's not a good story. And he doesn't respect people. You have to respect other people um, if you want them to work for you. Um, so I don't think he'll ever be a, a, a manager. Um, he may prove us wrong or may, may prove me wrong. I think he's sad man he should celebrate what he's achieved in his life he's got a beautiful wife and five beautiful children and you know they're good people the kids they they live here his parents they're good people and he's been a good man in many ways and a great great footballer so i hope nothing bad happens to the guy but he's become tiresome we should talk as well about Ireland now because uh, that's where that's where you are. Um, and it's been interesting over the past um, this qualification t- t- tournament yeah. for the uh, for the Euros. We could talk about Irish politics if you want, but uh, but but but, but, but <laughs> no, the Republic for, for the first time in a long time, the, the Northern Ireland team shows some sign uh, of of life. And uh, I mean, I think you know Michael O'Neill from I do days know at Shamrock. Michael, yeah. Um, the fact the fact of the matter is, he does not have a brilliantly talented bunch of players there, but he's no. got a fine team. Yeah, he did some analysis with us during the World Cup last year. He's a terrific guy, knows his football, and he's done. It's actually a miracle that he's achieved what he's achieved with the squad of players he has, and he deserves massive uh, support and a and a big job. He's a really good, a nice man, very sharp, knows his stuff, and I hope he gets a. I hope they qualify, and b. I hope he gets a decent job out of it. Michael O'Neill's a top class man. And we're, we're, you know, people may be listening at any time, but we're doing this also in the run-up to the upcoming Rugby Union World Cup. Yeah. Um, the rugby team in Ireland, uh, and for people like myself, you know, one generation away, is a real focus because it represents the whole island. And uh, when yep. I sometimes put this, I put this uh, um, to, to people in the, involved in uh, Irish rugby. They're often very reluctant to talk about that, but I think it's, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why it has become so popular. Uh, on the island and why the team means so much abroad as well. Yes, it's a, an all-Ireland sport. And they have had their golden generation of players, Brian O'Driscoll being, mm-hmm. of course, the most famous of them, but Sexton, uh, Paul O'Connell, mm. they're great, great players. Uh, we have great hopes that they'll get maybe to the semi-final of the World Cup. Mm-hmm. We don't know, maybe a little bit further. Um, great coach at the moment, uh, Joe Schmidt. So I'll be watching it, everyone in the country will be watching it. And it is, along with golf and Rory McIlroy and, you know, Shane Lowry, rugby and golf and, of course, hurling are the great sports here at the moment. Not, unfortunately, soccer, but we just don't, we don't produce street footballers anymore. They're well, all indoors uh, playing you could, you with their gizmos. The Republic of Ireland could follow the same road as Scotland if they aren't very careful. For the, same, for the exact same reason. Yep. And finally, uh, I noticed on, on the, the most popular television show in Ireland, the Lake Lake Show recently, now whether you're being tongue-in-cheek or whether you're not so entirely happy with what you're seeing, the, the Republic of Ireland has done over the last 25 years a great job of selling itself to the world, the Celtic Tiger and all the rest of it. Then there was a the recession and you described the country using a, a tremendously Irish word, if you don't mind me saying, as a kip. <laughs> Yeah. Um, are you not happy with the little I green think, country? I think we don't know how to administer governments in this country. We've had a succession of very bad governments since the foundation of the state, actually. And most people here would agree with that. Um, wonderful charm and 
of the people. Uh, beautiful country, as you know, mm -hmm, Danny. It's mm -hmm. in your blood. Mm -hmm. uh, and the people are delightful. But the political class everywhere, around the world now, I think, is despised. But they deserve it more, perhaps, here than they do anywhere else. I suppose English people would say the same thing. The good thing is we don't have a, we don't have a right-wing fringe or, you know, but they're just bumbling incompetence. Well, I think for me, I mean, as an outsider looking in, a very interested outsider looking in, uh, what I don't understand is how the, uh, at least in England, uh, in Britain, the political class is somewhat separate from the business class. They're, they're both they're both troublesome yeah. entities. That's in a Ireland, very important distinction. But in Ireland, they're, they're absolutely overlapping. There's nothing in the Venn diagram. They're just the same well, people. They all went to school together, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> and they're married into each other. And it's, you know, it's like they have the stuff and we're not getting any. And the health service here we don't have. We don't have education. Uh, we don't have housing. There's a homeless crisis in Dublin City, as we speak. So the ravages of austerity are still being felt here um and it's it's very sad to watch in this building i'm sitting in uh this junkies and stuff outside it's terrible well raymond it only really remains for me to ask you where you are in your life today you're a 70 year old person still with uh, yeah. clearly all your faculties and a great deal of fire in your belly um have you any unfulfilled ambitions and are you a happy man Yes, I am a very happy and very fortunate uh, man. I have um, four grandchildren. And uh, yes, I am very, very fulfilled and happy. I'd like to write two more books. Um, one, the second part of a memoir. And one, uh, a novel about our friends in the political business uh, class here. <laughs> have to be a novel because the laws of libel are very, very severe here. And um, that, that's what I'd like to do. And um, maybe work for a little bit longer. I think work is good for you. Um, so I'm very happy, very content, very lucky. And when you consider what a... I was a journeyman footballer, and I'm very proud of that. I'm not ashamed of it. I think it's a great thing to be. Um, worked at it, worked hard. So I'm happy. I've been very lucky. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.